You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of 2022. If this is any indication on how the year is going to go, we're in for some banger episodes this year. This one is fantastic. Ken Andrews is a music legend. Let's be perfectly honest. He's worked with a ton of different bands in a production sense. His band Failure is legendary, and he is just a delight to talk to. We had a great time going over gear, going over just everything. This is really a fun episode. I think you're really, really going to enjoy it. I just have one quick note before we dive into this thing. I did put out one more song before the year was over on New Year's Eve. I put out a song called The Machines Are Us. It's available wherever you stream music, so if you search American Cyclops, you will find The Machines Are Us, and it is a single. It's a big departure from the more ambient style that I've been doing, and I would love to hear what you think. It's pretty abrasive and mechanical sounding, and it is entirely based around the Maris Auto Bit Jr. pedal. I was literally messing with that pedal one evening. All of a sudden, that song came out. It's got a lot of sequenced bass and different uh, stutter effects, and that all comes from the Maris Auto Bit Jr., and it is a fantastic little unit that is surprisingly versatile. And uh, I don't mean to turn all of these songs into pedal demos, but some of them, you know, really, really, well, they're essential for the song. There's Microcosm, which is obviously the hologram effects pedal, and there's Outward, which is the Cooper effects pedal, and now we have The Machines Are Us, which is the Autobit Junior. So I pull a lot out of these things as far as inspiration goes, so hopefully you enjoy these weird romps through the swamps of sound, and uh, yeah, I would really appreciate you checking it out. I think that's enough plugging, though, for this episode. Let's dive right into this one with Ken, because I think you're going to love it. Let's do this. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Tone Mob podcast, the show about guitar stuff occasionally, sometimes. I'm your host, Blake Wyland, and with me today, I have Ken Andrews from Failure and like 4 million other things. So what's going on, man? Hey, how are you doing? Good, dude. This is exciting for me. Um, I remember way back when I was recording this podcast uh, in various parking lots and in cars and, uh, you know, random places with my cell phone. I talked to my friend Paul Roney, who made one of my favorite guitars. And, and it was like one of the first times I'd had somebody recommend me an album via the internet uh, on the podcast, and it was the the previous failure record. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was like, you know, I I used to listen to that band. I I didn't realize it was like this whole thing that I'm sure a lot of people did. They're like, I didn't realize. Oh, they they're back. Cool. And then that record came out, and it was awesome. And so this is like this is a real treat for me. Uh, it's kind of cool. a, 
circling of the wagons, so to speak. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we started the band actually had its first rehearsal where we actually got together in the same room and played music in 89. Wow. So <laughs> we've been we've been around for a while. I mean, it's weird having that huge gap in the middle of of things. Yeah. Um just historically to kind of like process the whole canon of what we've made, but um I mean, for us personally, it was like when we kind of got back together, the first few times we got back in the in the in the room together after the big break, the 16 years or whatever, it was like people were just kind of had these weird giddy smiles on their faces <laughs> because yep. we were just like it was like our hands knew where to go for the old songs mm -hmm. even though it had been so long. Like wow. I remember singing cuz I could kind of, you know, singing is like a little more automatic you remember the melodies and the lyrics and stuff but yeah. like whether or not the second chord in the chorus was e or b is not something you would be able to just like say right, right. like right you know all the chords right yeah the second chord is what no you're just i literally remember looking down singing and seeing my hand move, but I didn't, I wasn't controlling it. <laughs> it was just like, wow, it just knows that that's the right chord. Cool. Okay. I'm just going to like, let you do your thing over here. Right. It's like almost like the subconscious was taking over and piloting the meat vehicle there for a minute. That's right. Yeah. It was mm -hmm. really, it was, and we, we and, and I looked around and the other guys had that kind of like awkward little smile on their face, like, <laughs> What's happening right now? <laughs> it doesn't seem like I can't think of very many other bands that have, you know, been together so intensely for so long and then had that big gap and came back with the same amount of force that you guys did. Is it because that chemistry was just somehow still there naturally? Or what do you attribute that to? Um, I would say two things. I would say one, first and foremost, what you just said, like the, the, the thing, whatever it is, the chemistry was still there and it still resulted in the sound of the band when we played. Mm -hmm. So that, so that, yeah, a that's, and that, but B was we had the desire to, um, not come back and just do a reunion tour or not or um not come back and do like a couple crappy songs or something right right like it was like you know there's like a bunch of bands in history who've kind of broken up at different times in their career and people always talk about you know you want to go out on a high note right and even though we broke up in 97 under stressful um, not planned for conditions. Um, in hindsight, like even just a few years later, uh, I thought I had my freaking uh, do not disturb on. Sorry about that. No worries. I didn't hear it. So okay, good. good. Yeah. Um, um, uh, the, the, we got we we just wanted to make sure that we weren't going to make the same mistakes that we had seen other right. 
acts do. And and I think, oh, I, I think my thought was even just like, you know, even in 99 and 2000, I could see that, you know, as stressful and as kind of depressing as the breakup was in 97, um, creatively and artistically, our output at the end was actually we went out on a high note. Yeah. So if you're going to reform and your last album was Fantastic Planet, like, what what are your intentions? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, why ruin this for everybody, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. why why for yourself or your fans? It's just like, why waste everybody's time if you're just going to come back to try to make a few bucks quick? Right. It's... um. It's you never want to be that uh, that one that's like, man, they should have quit permanently. Like, they yeah. You don't want to do that. You know, like, I mean, one of my favorite bands in, in the history of rock bands is the police. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people were pretty bummed that they went out on synchronicity. You know, it's like mm -hmm. and including Andy Summers and Stuart Copeland. Right. Who have said, like, we felt like we were at the top of our game. We we're only four albums in. Let's keep going. Well, okay. But in hindsight, I mean, they never screwed up. I mean, right. they every one right. of their records is good, I think. I mean, so you know, the early stuff was quite different than where they ended up. So it's a little... Um, I could see how some people might not like the very early stuff. But there's a... To me, there's a very respectable like progression there of where they went. And I don't know. I was kind of like not I wouldn't say happy that that was their last album, but it was just like, wow, well, at least they didn't screw it up. You know, it's a bittersweet thing. You know, it's like you don't want to you don't want to see them quit, but you also don't want to see them make something that makes you bummed either. Like it's it's both like I'd be more upset if they made something that it's just like, uh. You know, it's kind of like uh, the, you know, in another entertainment field, it's like the equivalent of Vince Gilligan taking Breaking Bad down at the right time. You know, he was like, we can't take this show any, if we just keep going and then it turns into The Walking Dead where it's just, yeah. okay, now it's another episode, you know. Instead, they took it out when it was at its peak. It was never going to get any better than that. And they stopped that, that particular series, you know. Um, and bands can do the same thing. And. The difference is I think it's harder to know when you're the artist intimately creating on that level. I think you're so close to it. It can be hard to know if you've hit that point or not. And I feel like you guys are able to recognize that in in a way more on the reformation. Um, how well, do you identify that? Uh, that's a really good question. So there's, some, there's a bunch of different narratives about how the band and why the band even got back together. Some people were like, because we played um, Maynard Keenan's 50th birthday as one of our very first shows, it was actually not our first show back. It was the second show back. Um, uh, they kind of thought that Maynard asking us to do that show was the reason we got back together. And it, the timeline actually fits that that could be the case, but that was actually not the case. When he called me, and I hadn't spoken to him in years, uh, he was, 
he wasn't aware that just, I think, 10 days prior, we had actually already booked the El Rey show, which was our oh. first show back in 2014. And so it was just a kind of happy accident that he, he was like, so would you consider getting the band back together just to do this show for my birthday? And I was like, well, actually we're already back together. <laughs> it was kind of very fortuitous that you called because we're actually playing our first show back like just a few weeks before your birthday show at the so, El Rey. Mm -hmm. And he was like, oh, okay, cool. Awesome. Well, that works out for everyone. Yeah. No kidding. So and then you didn't have to cram for it. You know, <laughs> you were already practicing. We were, yeah, we kind of had already talked about it, but so what, what I don't think most people know, I mean, they would if they'd heard me tell this story, but um, the reality is, is that we didn't even book that show, the El Rey show, until we had already started working together in the studio. And oh, by, wow. by, by we, I, we hadn't really brought Kelly in at that point. It was just Greg and I working in my studio because... I already had this whole idea about not wanting to come back and just do a reunion show. Right. If we were going to come back, we're going to be a band that makes yeah. new music and that tries to do something that is worthy of people, you know, spending their time listening to it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so... We had actually already gotten pretty far down uh, the path of having, I think, two, maybe three songs that would actually end up appear on The Heart is a Monster. Oh, wow. And so, so that was my test. I, you know, it was like, well, okay, if we are going to go ahead and book a show and kind of dip our toe in the water, before we even do that... I, I want to know that we that we still have it, that we still have something that is going to uh, be entertaining to me, but also like show that the band is like trying to like progress. Right. So trying to keep it, you know, keep its identity, but actually not just remaking one of our previous records. And so I felt I had that proof uh in the in the three songs that we had already started mm -hmm. and so that's that's and then the rest is what we did so i think the latest record is actually possibly an even better example of pushing things forward in mm. my in my viewpoint i was listening to it this morning going like this is failure but it's not at the same time it's not a rehash i should say mm. the, the newest records i was i was just kind of surprised um, the I'm directions just my that. Off real quick. Okay, no worries. <laughs> I understand. Uh, the coffee is starting to warm me up a little bit. Yep. Yep. Okay, keep going. Okay, uh, I was I was actually a little bit surprised at um. When I think of failure, I think of really dense, thick sounds, uh, for a lot of the the tracks. At least that's what sticks in my brain. And I was surprised at how much atmosphere was injected into this latest one and it, how it fits the title so well. Um, was, this a, was this latest record, was this an intentional exploration of the more airy side of things? I mean, there's definitely dense moments, but it's such a, uh, 
it's not a departure, but it's new, you know, in mm-hmm. my ears anyway. Yeah. No, I, I feel exactly the same way. I, I, yeah, departure might be a little bit strong, but there's new things going on, especially, I think, how would I say this? I think if you kind of like the feeling that you get from the music mm-hmm. is probably the moods and stuff are probably kind of similar because that's maybe the core identity of the band is kind of like this darker, moody kind of thing, the feeling you get from listening to the music. But um, the records, and especially this record, we tried to create those same feelings, but using different techniques. Right. Like part-wise, like like how the parts, uh, how each person's part was... Um, relating to the the other two guys' parts like instead of uh we're just really not super interested in playing anything together anymore (laughs) 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 or like tracking each other you know what i mean yeah like like doubling or or um you know kind of like guitar following the root notes of the bass with chords or something like that like that i just you know that's just something that none of us are really just interested in musically. So we don't do it really. Yeah. Um, and then, but on this album, I think what happened was is because we decided to spend so much time, um, um, for sort of formally doing these, uh, improv sessions or jam sessions as people call them. Um, like we said, okay, let's do this for a month. And, and not try to write a song, just try and come up with ideas that are sort of stream of consciousness, not, you, uh, th- something you, things you can't do when you're just alone trying to compose a song. Yeah. Just get that weird kind of like, you know, thing that happens. And when you have three people reacting off each other. So, and I think what just happened is that where we were at, where we were all at musically speak, musically and technique and how th- and songwriting technique, we were just pushing each other. Okay, cool. That's your baseline. Well, this is my guitar part, which is like it it fits, but n- just barely. <laughs> you know like, what I mean? A hundred percent. Yeah. Yes. Um, and finding those moments where it does just barely fit, but just kind of seems like, I don't know, just has this like kind of, um, inexplicable quality to it. That kind of, um, thing where you can't, it's hard to take it apart technically and say, well, the reason this is catchy or cool or whatever is because this, this, and this, it became this whole thing of like, can we make musical moments that just are, are just inexplicably cool? in yeah. a way. Yeah. Um, and so we pushed ourselves for a whole month and doing those improvs and specifically sort of restraining ourselves from saying, okay, this is a cool idea we just came up with. Let's expand it into a full song and write like, let's write. Instead of doing that, we, we, we as soon as we felt like we had kind of like, um, defined an idea or came up like okay well there's that idea we would just move on oh interesting okay so all we're trying to do is just create moments really in fact if you listen to the 
the whole thing, which is like 40 plus hours of nonstop improv, um, you hear like ideas sort of like start, they kind of ramp up and then they peak and then they just drizzle apart or just, mm -hmm. you know, just kind of fall apart. And then we're on to the next thing. Yeah. And there's no talking, like hardly any talking. We just, just got down to it. And I have to say that, like, at the end, after taking a break for a week or two and then listening back, I was like, okay, like, there's there's a lot of crap in here, but there's some really good stuff, like, more than I, way more than I thought when we were doing it. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to Greg about that. It was like, when we were doing it, I think we all kind of, well, at least Greg and I kind of walked away slightly disappointed, depressed dejected because we spent three and a half weeks in there and i think we both kind of felt well if we get two or three songs out of it you know that'll be a good thing because i didn't really hear that much you know and, and like as the months went on as we kind of like poured over all that material we realized actually no there's there's i mean now i can now see that there's probably actually two to three albums worth of material in there. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, I definitely know that feeling where you, I kind of part of what I do to relax in the evening is come out here and plug in 400 different pedals and just zone out. And I've started recording it. Uh, and most of the time I'll even be like, eh, that was fun for me, but it wasn't anything worth anything, you know, mm -hmm. but once in a while, I'll go back and I'll have jammed for like an hour and a half and I'll be like, there's like four different genuinely decent ideas I can springboard off of in there. And it's always surprising to me when it happens. And I think that that is part of just letting go and mm -hmm. letting what happens happen. And it may not always make like, it might not make logical sense in the moment you come back with fresh ears later and you can appreciate what came out of the situation. That sounds very similar to what you guys did. That's exactly what we did. Maybe just, you know, a, li a little bit more formalized in the sense that, yeah, we rented a space. The three of us went in there. We took all of our equipment, all of our guitars and multi-tracked record recorded everything for, yeah. for weeks. So, it was just kind of like an expanded version of what we've done on, I would say, about maybe half the albums where we cool. have said, you know, you know, let's just take a few. Let's just take some time and just kind of like jam a little bit, see where we're all at, like, you know, creatively, like what we're interested in. Maybe grab some new pedals or some new guitars or something and try, you know, just see where we're at. But this time was like actually let's do that but let's like an expanded version of that yeah but but what i was going to say that you were kind of hinting at um when you were just talking there was that one of the things that i that both greg and i are kind of fascinated about is that uh, on average most of our favorite little musical nuggets from those improvs uh most of us can't remember playing it. Oh, and yeah. I've kind of gone back and looked at those timestamps 
And I, what I've noticed is that at the end of the week, the last, like Thursday and Friday, because we were just doing Monday through Friday. And like Thursday and Friday evenings late were probably the probably where the most interesting stuff came from. Yeah. And it, it made us think of this whole thing that um, Stanley Kubrick, the famous um, film director who who did 2001 A Space Odyssey, he would uh, talk about working with actors and doing multiple takes for the same scene. And he would say, yeah, you can, you know, sometimes you can get like something good from the actors in the first, you know, first two takes or so. And then you kind of have to keep going for a while. If you didn't get what you wanted in those first two or three takes, you have to keep going for a while because the actors start to overthink it. And then you kind of just have to keep going because he was famous for doing 30, 40, 50 takes, mm -hmm. which nobody at the time was doing because everything was still shot on film back then. And that was expensive. Oh, yeah. That's like, a lot on the cutting room floor. Yeah. I mean, it was like, you get to 30 takes with an actor and what was happening mentally was that he was kind of breaking them down basically in a way. And he would basically say, yeah, so there's like, yeah, from take three to take 20, it's just going to be a bunch of shit that they learned in acting school. Right. <laughs> <You know>? Right. <laughs> and then once you get like further out and they, they're, they're almost like giving up, you know, cause, cause they don't know what to do. Well, they don't know what he wants. They don't like, know what? what he wants. Yeah. Like and, and that's when he says you get the magic, right? And but I, so I, I was just kind of relating that to our thing. And I'm just kind of thinking what happened for us is I think when we were just literally the most exhausted and the most just like, I just want to go home. I'm, I'm hungry. You know, like I'm just like or, or you're not even there. You're just kind of like zoning out in a way. Yeah. I think that's when some of the most interesting things actually came up. And I, I mean, I know for a fact that like headstand came from one of those moments because none of us can ever remember playing anything from that jam. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not, what you're saying is not weird to me at all. My whole, my whole last record, which is my first thing I ever did solo was all done in that state of mind. I was mm -hmm. all late at night. Uh, I was exhausted. The first song came, the first real song that I ended up using came after, uh, it came on rather, uh, uh, the sixth. And I was stressed and there the whole, I mean, I think everybody in the country was at the time, uh, just in general. And I was just not feeling very good. And then this thing came out and I felt a lot better. And I went back and listened to it. And I'm like, I don't know who did that. Mm -hmm. like, I don't know. I'm like, that wasn't me. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that happened, but I know those states you're talking about where you're just like, it's almost like the, that's when the literal muse takes over. It's like, I'm, I'm driving this train now and you guys are doing it all together, which is even more magical. That's got to feel insane when you listen back. It, it was really, I mean, it took a long time because I think as, as, as people who've done any editing of any kind of media, if it takes you three, four weeks to create those files, it's going to take you at least double the time to edit them. 
100%. Because you have to at least listen to it and evaluate it and then go back and cut it. And then, you know, it's just like, right, you know, it just takes a long time. So thankfully, the, even though that was like a three-month period, basically, where I was editing and kind of whittling down and making sort of like highlight reels. Yeah. Different kinds of tempos. Like, here, here's a bunch of fast ideas that are like, cool, what do you guys think? Um, as I was making those, it was enjoyable because it was more enjoyable than actually doing the improvs. I could see that. Because you're actually... I, I never, you don't get to walk away from those jams with something to listen to where you're like, oh, this is awesome. You know, we just right. didn't, we didn't, <laughs> we didn't allow ourselves that luxury. And maybe that, I don't know. I don't know if that was a good idea or a bad idea, but it is what it is. But I was going to say the muse, what is the muse? I mean, if you're going to get into the science of it, I think maybe what we really did on, on this album and on by doing this longer sort of improv um, phase of the record, I think what we were trying to do is try to cultivate um, turning off our left brains. Okay. Was that intentional or did you just... It, I didn't think about it, it along at the, the time way. when I was booking yeah. the studio. Yeah. But now I'm kind of thinking, having lived through doing that and, and, and driving home every night going like, what the hell happened today? Like, I don't even <laughs> like, just kind of, you know, in a bit of a fog about it. Yeah. Um, I think what that, that was what we were trying to do. We were trying to force ourselves into a position where you just kind of like give up in a way you kind of, mm -hmm. or the editor in you gives up and kind of just walks out of the room. <laughs> kind of like, I can't do anything with this guy. I'm out. I'm going to let him do yeah. his thing. Where, where's mm -hmm. the next part? Where's the arrangement? Where's the lyrics? Where's all of the things that you need the components to finish a song? We never let the uh, person have a say, you know, right. <laughs> <laughs> until later. I love that. We, 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 we segmented those things. We said, okay, here's the right brain process. And then here's the left brain slash right brain, you know, through the overdub and the spinning these ideas into arrangements and songs and lyrics. And, you know, so they felt like complete things. Do you think that you'll take that approach again? Or do you want to go back to the more structured form? Because I think there's merits to both. Oh, How there's definitely right merits now? to both. And and, yeah. and I should qualify by saying that, um, you know, this shorter record, there's 10 songs, right? So it's not the whole record. It's the majority of the record is, is sourced from those jams. But there are one, two, three. Um, I think there's four, but I think it. There's either three or four. The three that I can think of right now are Bring Back the Sound, Undecided, and Half Moon. Mm -hmm. Those were all composed ahead of... Those were composed in a more like normal way um, where either Greg or I was writing the nuts and bolts of the song by ourselves. Right. And then right. coming in and saying, hey, I have this song. Here it is. Uh, th that was certainly the case with like bring back the sound where I like, I, I wanted to actually compose something 
in a more normal way like you're like we were just talking about where you're like okay here's my here's a guitar part i think this could be an intro and now i'm gonna work on a transition and you know um and then i'm gonna come up with vocal melody and lyrics and so that song was written in the more formal kind of or normal way i i would say yeah um and I was a little concerned that those songs weren't fitting, actually, on the record for a while. Um, but then get, Greg came up with a, 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 a sequence where he was, I mean, he. I was like, I told him, I got, I'm a little concerned. Like, is this record a little too varied, a little too, like, the moods are shifting too much? And he's like, give me a minute, give me a minute. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you something. And he showed me something, and I was like, "Damn, this like <laughs> this is making sense to me now." It, it like the contrast. He made the contrast between the songs actually work, right, and feel cool as opposed to feeling disjointed, right. More of a transition rather than just a hard stop. And like, here's the next thing. Mm -hmm. It's like, I mean, that reminds me of this stupid moment when in high school when we played Battle of the Bands. And we had one original song and two covers or whatever. The original song was like three different songs just kind of together. They were all okay ideas on their own. They made no sense all jammed together. Like I, it was the right. dumbest thing. I like one of the dumbest <laughs> musical choices I've ever made. I'm glad it doesn't really exist anywhere except some old VHS tape. Uh, <laughs> 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 but uh, supposedly this show. Uh, is about gear, or at least mm -hmm. that's how, what I trick people into uh, believing when they click on it. Um, so you've had a wide variety of things that you've used over the years. So rather than just going over that whole journey, which I don't think, I think that would take four and a half hours probably. Mm. I wanted to ask you whether it's a record that you worked on in a production and in recording capacity, or whether it's something you personally made, what are some of your favorite, like, tones that you've came up with and do you remember what the rig looked like for those moments mm. well i mean first of all the i the, the 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 journey with failure and gear um was just you know that was one that's one of the things that is just so different from the 90s to now right because the technology completely changed during that break yep and um, when I, when when Greg and I were sort of doing those initial writing sessions in like 2013, th that would become the heart as a monster. I wasn't in. I what I was not. Uh, I was aware of, but I w was not a part of the whole modeling, amp modeling thing yet. I had a, I, in fact, that studio that I had at that time had, I had built a dedicated amp closet essentially Ooh, yeah. that had room for, I had four different speaker cabinets in there. I had a Marshall, I had a Vox, I had a twin and then like a small speaker thing too. And it was all mic'd up all the time going into preamps ready to go. I just had to arm a track in Pro Tools and I could be playing through whatever amp I wanted. I love that. 
Yeah, it was great. And it worked. And I did a lot of records that way. Um, and so that's what I was familiar with. Then as we started, and that's what we actually recorded with on those very for early um, tracks. Uh, but as the idea of playing live uh, started to take shape and the idea of trying to cover and try to do all the sounds that we had, even just on the first three 90s records, uh, those rigs that we had at the end of, of uh, 97 when we broke up, they're, they're way gone. They were all part. I mean, there's probably, there's some pedals I still have from those rigs, but like the whole infrastructure of having a giant rack with uh, two preamps, two power amps, uh, switching system for analog pedals and stuff. My memory of it was not super, f I, 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 did, I didn't have a good memory of that stuff. I mean, I liked the sound and it was fun. But the reality of those rigs were they were super prone to breaking down. Right, right. You had hundreds of connectors and cables in them. And if you did have a problem, like the, trying to chase it down would become an all-day affair. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and there were just oh, yes. so many shows <laughs> where something would go wrong. And I would, uh, during the actual show. And I would have to just resort to going to a, a sort of backup cable straight into one of the amps mm -hmm. and just kind of like limp through the rest of the show with no effects and just or very few effects or whatever. And I that part of it was like really starting to come back to me. And I was like, God, I just and then, then the idea of the expense of trying to rebuild something like that. And I was talking to my friend Billy Howardell from Perf Circle, and he's like, well, haven't you ever, you, do you know about fractals? And I was like, what are fractals? And he's like, um, I'm going to come over. I'll, I'll be over in like an hour. And he brought me his fractal, or one of his fractals, because he already had several. Mm -hmm. Now, he wasn't actually, and I don't think he still uses the amp modeling part of them. Because he still likes to use his, he has a particular Marshall half stack that he likes to use live. Okay. Specifically because he puts it like a certain um, number of feet away from his mic or where he's mostly standing. It's like 15 feet or 20 feet or something like that. And he can get this sort of like perfect singing feedback. Gotcha. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, and it's part of, his sound for like two or three of their songs. So he kind of needs the, he at least needs the speaker cabinet thing, you know, um, working a certain way for, for his performance. Right. Um, no quiet soundstage for him. That's not going to work. I don't think so. I, I, I yeah. And yeah, I, I, yeah, he just hasn't embraced the full modeling thing. I, I, I think I think he's getting closer and closer though because I think there are some clean sounds where he's using the amp modeling in the fractal. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I don't know, but he turned me on to those. And then I also another artist friend of mine, um, Anthony from M eighty three, which is a whole 
different kind of band. Right. Um, he was like, oh, yeah, I know. I heard about Fractals, but I have this other one. Um, and now I'm spacing on that name. What, what's the other? Kemper. I was, okay, yeah, probably a Kemper, Kemper I was going to say. Yeah. And at that point, this is like 2014, those were like kind of like the two big boys on the on the block in terms of really high tech and uh, realistic amp modeling. Uh, there were some other, like Line 6 was starting to get into that world, but they hadn't really come out with their... their the Helix yet, yeah. Their, the Helix yet, right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... I messed around with both of those for almost a month because I was like, well, at first I did it for like a week and I was like, okay, I'm sold. Like this is doable for live for sure. And then it was like another week or so of deciding which platform to use. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately we decided to go with the fractal. I just feel like, it just fits my workflow better. I like having the USB controller and really being able to do um, much more sophisticated and, and um, kind of creative signal routing. Mm -hmm. That it's it's just a more it's a deeper box, um, and you know in some cases for a lot of people that's why they don't like it, and right. I totally get that. The Kemper looks more like an ant. It's designed to be a much softer landing for people who are just used to having like six knobs on a on a real tube head. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I, you know, at that point, I'm I'm already like what twenty years into making records in Pro Tools, so I'm a I'm a digital boy at that point. <laughs> so, um. And they're small, right? It compared, the weight difference between one fractal and the rig that I had in 1996 was like, I don't even know, like what, 10 pounds compared to like 300 pounds probably. Oh, e easily, yeah. Um, so we just went down that path and, and I have not regretted it at all. I, I, in fact, for me, I find it to be a much more creative um, platform to work in because you don't have to be like, oh shit, I just need one more cable that's, you know, four inches long to go between this pedal and this pedal. You know what I mean? I mean, we still actually do that. We still do put pedals in front of the fractals, but I would say for so many sounds now, I can, I can get what I want pretty quickly and I don't even need to use any pedals. Wow. That's amazing. Do you use it in the studio as well as live, or do you kind of go more old school in the studio? No. 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 Doing it all. No. I have to tell you, there's like the amount of real amps. On now, now we have three, three records in the 2000s. Heart of Monster, In the Future, and Wild Type Droid, this new one. Th three full albums. The amount of real amps on those three albums is probably 2%, 3%. Wow. Wow. Like Wild Type Droid, for instance, there's only one section of one song. It's the last song on the record, Greg's song, Half Moon. Mm -hmm. And it's only in the bridge because the rest of it's more like just acoustic guitar kind of ballady thing. And then 
drums and uh, electric guitars come in in the bridge. And those electric guitars, there's like a couple tracks of just chords, and then there's some feedback tracks. Those are the only real amp tracks on the entire album. Wow. And it sounds awesome. I literally just spent the whole morning with it again. So, Well, like... I think if you... I mean, I've spent a lot of time with the Fractals now, and I know people are like, uh, I, I've heard mixers say this. When I get a album where they've tracked all the gu different guitar parts with a modeler, I have a lot harder time mixing those songs because I find like I can't get separation between the parts because all the modeling sounds sort of have this similar character or just overarching profile that doesn't lend itself to separation or definition or, you know, whatever. That's bullshit. I just, sorry for swearing, but like, that's just <laughs> not real. It is so not real because what is really happening in those modelers is that they have modeled like hundreds of different real amps, you know? So when you pull up a Fender Twin in the Fractal, it sounds like a Fender Twin. It doesn't sound like a Marshall. It, it right. has the same amount. I mean, a Fender Twin and a Fractal with a Marshall playing together sounds, if they're both in the Fractal, they, that sound, those, that combination has the exact same characteristic as if in the real world where you have a Fender and a Marshall together. It's just, it's the way it is. So when people hear this record and they're like, but you got so many different sounds. Yeah, because we use different amps. That's <laughs> that's really all it is. I, I wonder if the people complaining about that are running into the situation where whoever recorded it didn't use different amps. So it's I like, think that's what it is. Uh, you know? It's like, oh, we... Oh, they all use Marshall JCM eight hundred clone or models. Uh, well, no, I can't. Wow, they all sound the same. Amazing. Like who to thunk it? You don't do that in the studio with the regular amps. At least I don't. You know, I, I've never been anywhere that did. Um, so why would you do that? I mean, that's the beauty of the modeling, in my opinion. Like I really like using real amps, but I'm a spoiled little boy and I can just, I don't tour and I can play out here and make a big mess and I'm not on any deadlines. I'm just doing it for myself. So I don't need to be efficient. You know, I can mm -hmm. be, I can be dumb about it. But what I've found is that if I, every time I don't remember to run a DI out as well so that I can play with models later, I always kick myself because it's like, oh, that's, I've actually recorded with real amps before and then took, listened back and went, mm, that felt good in the room, but it didn't translate to the recording. Good thing I have a DI and then I'll play around with uh, different amp models until I get something that, that, or mix something in with the real amp until I get something I really like. So I'm really coming around on it. I used to be pretty, uh, pretty firm in the, the hardware world, but yeah, the technology is too good now. It just it's is. It's so good. I mean, yeah. it's so good. There's so many people who say they could tell the difference that I guarantee you I could fool them with an a, with a blind A-B test. I've, I fooled myself. I've, I've see, I see it happen all the time. <laughs> Mastering engineers thinking a file was 
either mixed in the box or not mixed in the box. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have to master this in the box mix. Yeah, it actually wasn't an it's or it was and it's great. You know what I mean? Like they get confused. Yeah. There's just no way you can accurately tell. Uh, I just don't think it's I, I think that argument is over personally. Now, there are some um, practical considerations that you have to think about. Um, one of the, one of them is, you know, because I get some people asking me, well, my band is we're just starting out and, you know, we've got a few originals and we want to play this local bar. And, um, you know, what do you think about fractals? And I'm yeah. like, mm, in that situation, might be a little tough. Might yeah. be a little tough because bars and, and, and house parties and stuff like that, like, you're going to have a limited PA. That's oh, yeah. probably just designed to get some vocals over the drums and sound and not even sound good doing it, right? Yeah. Yep. So there are venues where the whole idea of how the venue is set up is that they expect the band to have an actual real backlight. Yeah. And they might not even mic the amps because what's what's the point? They don't have the PA to support that. Yeah. So in those situations, you know, you're really just starting out and you're playing like small bars and stuff like yeah, maybe just have a few pedals and a combo amp. Mm-hmm. You know, you can Definitely. do a lot of damage, and you get. Uh, and then it comes down to this other. There's sort of one maybe Achilles heel with not Achilles heel, but like one disadvantage to modeling. If you run like we do live, which is, we don't bring anything that has a speaker cone in it. Oh when wow! We tour nothing. We use the speakers in the venues, mm-hmm. uh, well, meaning the PA, obviously. But also what we do is we usually turn the monitors, the floor wedges, mm-hmm. around facing the audience and use those as front fills. Our, our okay. sound person w- will put the mix into those so that people in the front are kind of experiencing what they would with a band with normal backline. Right. So that right. they can, if you're, if you're literally the person right center front, right at the barricade and you're watching a band that only uses modelers and has no amps on stage and the PA is literally flanked, you're like almost even with it, but it's like, you know, 50 feet left and 50 feet right of you. It's basically blowing past you. Yep. It sounds so what, weird. It sounds weird. Mm-hmm. And so you hear, the, and you're hearing all this reflected shit coming back from the back wall and whatever. So um, you're feeling the bass because yeah. bass travels everywhere yeah. and the subs might be right in front of you. But like to hear vocals and um, guitars, like crunchy guitars right there, you need to have some speakers for those people. So we've been sort of um we we focus on that when we show up Mm -hmm. like that's one of the first things we talk to the local venue people about is front fills yeah because we don't have a back line um and 
And so the, but getting back to the, the kind of um, disadvantage of, of doing that uh, for some, for some people is that, well, how do you get feedback? Guitar feedback Because guitar feedback. It's one of those things you just got to have it, right? If you <laughs> totally, you got it, you got it. I mean, we've used it like in a very like musical way. Sometimes we actually have parts that call for it. Oh yeah. Um, and you have to be able to get it. So that's been the one area where it's been like, mm, it's a little, it might cause us to have to use a particular guitar because certain guitars feedback better than others or are more controllable and, um, and, or we just have to kind of like test and sound check that we're able to get feedback from the PA usually. Yeah. Even though it's far away and not pointed at us at all. Um, we can it might reflect just right. It can reflect just yeah. right. We could just like some, sometimes we'll spend five minutes in sound check going, you know what? This PA is so separated from the stage. Um, which is gr which is great design, really acoustic great because that's what you want. Um, uh, that we're not able to get feedback from the PA. It's just like really well designed um, PA it's installation. Too, it's too here. good. Yeah, yeah too, too good. good. And yeah. at that point, we may take one or two wedges, and if we weren't using them for front fills, then we'll actually point them out. Uh, you know in a more traditional way at mm -hmm. us pointing up at us and put our fractal outputs in them. I don't know if this will work at all. Are you using any pedals live into the fractals? Yes. Or, or... And then the other thing we use, which I think you're going to say is uh, feedback pedals. The digi did digi tech freak out. Yeah, I, well, exactly. I love yeah. We thing. have all of those. Perfect. I assumed so. Yeah. Um, I don't need them because it just turns out on most of the songs where we need feedback, I'm playing bass. Yeah. And also, I just have a lot of other things going on in my world, like all the lyrics and stuff. So mm -hmm. I just want to keep my station as clean as possible. So I can just focus on performing. Um, and uh, But Greg has a full pedal board in okay. front of the fractal in because he likes to tweak and experiment and and do weird stuff that isn't the same every night with his pedals. I I can relate to that. Oh I yeah, that. it's it's a, <laughs> I, and I love that and I love the, that he does that. But you're busy. But I, I <laughs> if he wasn't doing that, then I would probably have to do it. But he's already doing it and he's covering it, and it's awesome that I don't have to deal with that. <laughs> so I have no <laughs> audio on. Uh, out at my station at all wow i'm Super wireless cool. out of my guitar straight straight back to the the fractal rack wow that is about as clean as it gets um we're getting close to the end here and i better at least grab a couple of the questions from the facebook group or they will get me in trouble sure uh, we we talked uh, a lot about the oh, we totally covered the, that question it was all about what we just talked about um this is probably the the most concise one. So my my buddy Jason Fuzzmonger, he's a moderator, big supporter of the show. Um, he wants to know what was responsible for the bass sound on Fantastic Planet. He says it's the unsung hero of that album. Um, the bass equipment that we used during that album was uh, basically our 
what we had for for live at that point, which was the standard SVT Ampeg SVT eight by ten cabinet and humongous overpowered tube head. Nice, right? Like that. I mean, that's that's like the the iconic thing, right? Totally. Totally. Yeah. So we had one of those, and we were Mm -hmm. we used it live, and it was freaking loud. And, um, so that was like, I would say that's like the main amp thing. Um, and just a cord going into it, we had to put it in a back bedroom of the house. Um, cause it's so loud. Um, but we also had a pedal board in front of it mm-hmm. that had, a, I think three pedals, really simple. And basically those pedals were all designed to have uh, create a distorted sound okay yeah so like if you turned them off there was some grind on the un unpedaled sound but not overly so yeah like he could if you played soft you could do the cleaner sections and the quiet parts and stuff um but when you engaged the pedal the pedals on the pedal board you had a i can't remember i think it was a turbo rat Oh, okay. Which I don't even know why. Because uh, it, it, it says was, turbo. But it's just on what it. we had. Yeah. <laughs> it was like a turbo rat into the boss bass EQ pedal, graphic EQ pedal, okay. which was brown, I think. And then a tuner pedal. So I think it was just those three, if I'm not mistaken. And basically, it was just, it was real simple. It was like, yeah, the the rat was providing the distortion, mm-hmm. and the uh, bass EQ pedal was uh, a sort of replacing the lost low end that you that you got when you engaged a rat pedal, because okay. rat pedals, at least back then, were meant for guitar, and a lot of the distortion circuits they didn't even bother with. I mean, it was just, it was everything below 100 was just kind of cut off. Mm-hmm. And it was all, it was about, you know, the mid range and the fuzz and the, and yep. so we wanted that on the bass, but we still wanted low end. Yeah. <laughs> so if you, if you would have looked at um, that bass EQ pedal, it was basically like, the right side, which is the high-end sliders, were flat. And then as soon as you got to the mid-range, they started going up. And then by the time you were, like, in base zone, like 100 or 50, those were just all the way up. Yep. Just putting that back in. Just putting that back mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that I think contributed to the sound was that we would, after the pedal board, we would split the sound. So, like, to, you would go into a DI. And then also to the amp. Popular. Yeah, it's my son. <laughs> He's calling me. Um, and uh, so what, what was I going to say? There, and the DI, so instead of just like a straight DI box, we yeah. had this thing called a Demeter tube base preamp. That was a I rack know. mount unit. I've seen those. Yeah. And that thing had a really cool 
sort of mojo with the bass guitar we were using at the time, which was a wall. Oh, okay. I forgot about those. It just, like, it almost seemed like there was a bit of an octave, like a low, like it was somehow adding a low octave. It was very weird. It's just like a, somehow the, the distortion in that was causing a harmonic down a little bit. Or but it something. wasn't distorted. Weird. Yeah. And I do remember, and I don't, I didn't take good notes at all. I did find some track sheets from, from that record, but like I did not take good notes. But I seem to remember on each individual song with the bass, I would experiment with either having that Demeter bass preamp, getting its signal either pre or post the distortion, depending on the song. Okay, okay. Okay, so sometimes only the amp would be getting the distortion pedals. Sometimes only the Demeter would get the distortion pedals. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they would both get the distortion pedals, depending on how much distortion you, you wanted for the part. Right, right. So the, like, the song Heliotropic, which probably has the most... Uh, where the bait where you can really hear the fuzzy bass yeah. in the intro yep. mm -hmm. that was both the demeter and the ampeg <laughs> getting the distortion it's so good i love it that was great that was a great answer i'm glad sometimes people can't remember when it's that long ago so that was uh well i've was gotten nice. so many questions about it that i i've gone through uh the archive of the very limited archive of photos that were taken in that sort of makeshift control room that we made. Yeah. And there was one photo of the floor under the con <laughs> under the desk. Yeah. Where you could see that pedal board. And awesome. I just saw it like a year and a half ago. And I was like, oh, there's the bass pedal board. <laughs> Finally, I know what we did. And you can actually see the chords. And yeah. And then That's it all kind of came rushing back. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, um, the, the only other question I think you probably have time for in the Facebook group is just, do you think you're going to be putting more videos out on YouTube uh, anytime soon? And that's from Shane Huckaba. Hopefully I pronounced his last um, name right. uh, fa Failure music videos or Ken Andrews YouTube channel videos? I believe he's asking about Ken Andrews YouTube channel videos. Okay, yeah, I know. I mean, I just, I, we were talking about this before we started the interview, just... My, you know, I'll be totally honest. My YouTube channel is just like right at that point where it's like, you know, I've got like 15,000 subscribers or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's just at that point where it's like not quite successful enough to hire someone to help me. Right. I know what you're talking about. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like where it's like, oh, it's just like a few more subscribers and then it would be, it would make sense to actually hire someone to help me edit the videos because that that's the only reason the frequency of my videos are so is so low right um it's just really time consuming i'm very particular about how they look and how they are edited and you know i'm just doing so many other things it's really hard but i did i don't know if this person saw but i did just drop one like yesterday about my well, studio I think the uh, question was actually asked last week, so um, they may have seen that by now. Okay, so. yeah, yeah. I have. I just dropped one about my studio here and all the 
hardware that I use. I don't, I didn't go into the like plugins and software because I've already covered that so much in, in other videos about how I mix in Pro Tools. Mm -hmm. um, so I just covered like my hardware, like the computer, the mic preamps and stuff like that. I am, I did also exclude all the instruments because right. that would have made it so much longer. That's a tale for another day. Yeah. So I'm going to mm -hmm. do like more, I think I'm going to do a live one on the there failure live gear, which uses all of my guitars and the fractals and stuff like that. Awesome. I'm going to go check that out for sure. Cause I'm in the middle of like, I like rebuilding my whole studio setup right now. So I'll be curious to see what you're using. I'm going to mm -hmm. go watch that as soon as it's we're not, done. I mean, there's not, I think you'd be surprised. A lot of it's really old. I mean, there's some <laughs> really new pieces, but a lot of it I've had for 20 years. Perfect. Yeah. That's fun. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yep. All right. So I do have two more classic questions before we totally wrap this up. But before I do that, this is where I like to give the guests the opportunity to you know, plug whatever they want to plug, shout out their grandma, whatever they want to say. This is like your moment to just take the floor and talk to a couple thousand people. Are you, wait, are you asking me something right now? Yeah, I'm just saying if you have anything, you just is just your time to shine. If you want to plug something that you've been working oh, on. Oh, sorry. I didn't. Yeah. Okay, sorry. I didn't hear yeah, the first yeah, yeah. part of what you just said. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I just obviously want to plug the new album. I mean, of that's course. why we're here. Um, and uh, I mean, I really, what I really would love to plug, but I can't um, do it just yet because it hasn't been completely 100% finalized. There will be a tour announcement coming up in a matter of weeks. Ooh, there we go. That's that's a good enough teaser. I yeah, think that, that counts. Cool. All right, final questions. This this one's usually goes pretty quickly, and then we get into the big controversial one to wrap this up. So, okay. first question is: What is your favorite Boss pedal? <laughs> um, actually, I would say that's actually not that hard for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boss BF2 Flanger, Purple Boy. I'm, me too. Really? I love the BF2. Yes, I it's, love my BF2. It's so, so good. It's got such an extreme sound. Yes. And there's so many cool things you could do when your guitar is oscillating or in feedback with it. I mean, it is all over uh, all the failure records pretty much because it's in the Fractal now. They just added it like a couple years ago. Nice. And I mean, I just listen, you know what record? I don't even know if people know this or maybe they do, but you know, you know what record has uh, just a huge amount of BF2 on it is Prince's Purple Rain. Oh, yeah. Yes. I mean, that whole every solo is BF2. It is. Yeah. I he mean, was famous and, for his all boss board. His like, his I mean, whole boss board, but for you, other things, you but. hear him in 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 like somebody's song. He's moving the knobs and stuff, and f interesting oscillations. And like that record is, yeah, he loved yeah. that. He loved that one. Yep, love the BF two. And uh, weirdly, uh, it's still one of the old Silver Screw made in Japan boss pedals that you can pick up relatively affordably. I picked mine up for like un like ninety nine bucks maybe three-ish three, three -ish years ago, two and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. 
you can still get them fairly cheap for vintage boss stuff, you know? Um, unless maybe I've talked about it too much and the prices have increased a little bit. That is fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for single note lead lines that are already distorted, it's just like, oh my lord. It's, it's so good. It's so good. Yep. All right, last question. This is the one that gets a little bit dicey. What is your favorite kind of pizza? Bah. Uh, I like thin crust. Yeah, I like. Too. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm not. A, I'm not down with a deep dish. I don't. I like. There's a place actually near my house. It's a chain now. Blaze. Blaze. Yeah. Blaze. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm pretty down with our pizzas. I can, eat all, I can eat all, almost a whole pizza by myself and not feel like I need to go to sleep for two days. <laughs> I have not had Blaze yet. They haven't quite made it to my neck of the woods, but I will be trying that as soon as, as soon as they do. That's pretty cool. Right on. All right. Well, thank you for, so much for your time. I know we've gone a, a little bit over. I really, really enjoyed this conversation, though. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. I had fun, too. Dude, this is a blast. Uh, definitely stay in touch. So, all right, everybody, for Ken, this is Blake. And as always, folks, good luck and good tones. Woo, that was a great start to the year. Wouldn't you agree? I think that was fantastic. I love it when they go that way. That was, that was just a lot of fun for me. So, unfortunately, that was all the time Ken had. That's how it goes sometimes. These people are busy. And uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that's a bad thing, though, because for this week's Patreon exclusive episode, I hopped on with my good friend Dewey Halpus from the Peer Pleasure podcast, and we went on a retrospective of sorts for the year. We literally recorded this New Year's Day, and we, we chatted for, well, I don't know, like... I think we chatted for like four hours total and we recorded about two and a half of it. Some of the stuff he kind of hints at on the on the episode that couldn't be made public. And uh, I understand why. So it's not going to derail the conversation, though. I think you'll really enjoy it. If you haven't heard Dewey's episode of this podcast, I would definitely suggest searching that out to get a little more of his story. But what this is, is essentially it's almost two and a half hours of two podcasters talking about what they do, how they do it, and we pull back the curtain in a lot of ways, kind of revealing, you know, how most podcasters are not Joe Rogan. <laughs> and uh, we, we talk a lot about um, sort of the inner workings of trying to produce these things and get them out in the world and get people to listen to them and the challenges associated with that. But we also talk about some of our favorite episodes from... 2021 and why they meant a lot to us and all that jazz. It's a really, really fun chat, and you can find that over on Patreon. If you can support the show there for five bucks a month, you will get extra episodes beamed to your ears every week. You can also subscribe through Apple Podcasts. There's a subscribe feature now, and that will hook right to your Apple account, and you'll get that same content sent right to your phone every single week. So I appreciate you. Thank you for hanging out. Please, as always, share this with your friends. And I hope you have a great 2022. I'm going to do my best to make it as entertaining as possible. I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. One last thing before we totally sign off here. I just want to remind you, 
that if you do any shopping at Stringjoy, that's Stringjoy Guitar Strings made in Nashville, that will help me out as well. As I've said for years, I'm heavily involved in that company, and I really do think they're making the best products on the market. So if you would like to try custom strings, go to ToneMob.com Stringjoy and check them out today. I seriously, seriously, seriously love what the team down there is doing. I help them out with all kinds of things, and by you supporting them, you are also supporting me as well. And hey, you need some strings, so why not get some custom strings just for your guitar and playing style? Again, the link for that is ToneMob.com Stringjoy, and that will take you right to their website, and you can do all your shopping through there, and that will help everyone involved out. So thank you very much. Talk to you next time. We are brought to you by the wonderful folks at Gun Street Wiring Shop. Yes, Gun Street Wiring Shop. I've talked about them before. I used to say based out of Bend, Oregon, but guess what? Sean moved to my neck of the woods. Sean's in Portland. Sean is awesome and has helped me with a bunch of stuff lately. And if you have wiring needs for your guitar, he can help you too. If you want to get weird with it, he can get weird. If you just need to spruce things up a little bit, there's your guy. He takes all the guesswork out of doing your guitar wiring, and he makes it simple, and his customer service is top-notch, and I can't say enough good things about Gunstory as a company. I really respect Sean and what he's all about, and the product is top-notch. I've got three different guitars that now have Gunstreet harnesses in them, and I could not be happier. So go to GunstreetWiringShop.com and check them out.